0: our faith at this time by use of the Apostles' Creed. Christian, what is it that you believe? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Ghost, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried, Please be seated. The responsive reading is Psalm 23. That's found on page 581 if you're using the Pew Bible there. Psalm 23, a psalm of David. The Lord is my shepherd, I shall not want. He makes me lie down in green passages.
1: He leads me beside still waters.
0: He restores my soul. He leads me in paths of righteousness for his name's sake. Even though I walk through the valley, answer the questions to the uh, Westminster Catechism Uh, if you look there uh, um, in your bulletin question 18, 19, and 20 question 18 what are God's works of providence?
1: God's works of providence are his most holy
0: wise and powerful preserving and governing all of his creatures Question 19, what is God's providence towards the angels? God by his providence some of the angels willfully and irrevocably
1: to fall into sin and damnation, limiting and ordering that and all their sins to his own glory and establish the rest in holiness and happiness, employing them all
0: as his Question 20. What was the providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created?
1: The providence of God toward man in the estate in which he was created was the placing him in paradise, appointing him to dress it, giving him liberty to eat of the fruit of the earth, putting the creatures under his dominion, and ordaining marriage for his health. Affording him communion with himself, instituting the Sabbath,
0: entering into a covenant of life with him, upon condition of personal, perfect, and perpetual obedience, of which the tree of life was a pledge, and forbidding to eat of the tree of, knowledge of the knowledge would be enabled upon
2: the pain. Good morning, Saints. Good morning. Now, uh, for those of you, you know, I, I know that for everybody that comes here every week, they hear me say the same thing every week, but I say it every week, not for the people that are here every week, but for the people that are not, right? Uh, so, for those of you that don't come from a church with a liturgical tradition, some of the things that we do in the service might be a bit interesting, but I assure you, we try not to do anything in the service for which we don't have a great deal of biblical evidence and even historical evidence. What historical evidence means, these things have been done in the church week in and week out for 2,000 years. One of those is the Apostles' Creed. And sometimes people are interested in that word Catholic in there. They're saying, "Are are we saying that we're Roman Catholic? But there's a long distance between Roman Catholicism as a specific denomination and the Catholicity of the church, which has always been believed, which is that all Christians through all of time, for thousands of years, are one body in Christ. And so there's this sense in which every true church is Catholic. Now, if you want to get real specific with it and say Roman Catholic, okay, we're not. We're way at the other side of the spectrum. We're Presbyterians. Most of our wonderful interactions with Roman Catholics have been through war and stuff like that, if you look back through that. But uh, hopefully we're past most of that now. Um, So that's why we do these things. And we do do confession. Because all through scripture, they had a time of confession. So right now for you, just between yourself and God, we're going to have a time of silence for you to ready your mind and heart for the rest of the service by confessing to him silently your particular and known sins. And also at this time, we as a people of God, there's a place that we went over Wednesday night in the the Bible study, where a large portion portion of the worship in ancient Israel had to do with unknown sins, what they called the unknown or unapprehended sins of the people. So we as a people of God, we still do that. We just pray generally as a people for even the sins that we don't know about. And we do that by saying, people of God, do you believe that you have sinned every day in thought, word, and deed? We do. And do you believe that you have fallen short of the glory of God and that your salvation rests in Christ alone and not in any righteousness that you have in yourselves? We do. And I declare to you, not by any power in me, but I just declare to you what Scripture declares to you, that if you have rested solely on the righteousness of Jesus Christ for your salvation, your sins are forgiven and you are reconciled to your God. Amen? Amen. Lord God, we also want to bring before you our particular petitions, the things that are on our hearts and minds today for which we need your help. We want to pray particularly, Lord God, for those of us that are struggling with different cancers, this dreaded disease that afflicts our people. We pray for Ava Roten, for Barbara Minor, for Peggy Ford, for Helen McBride, for Billy Paris, for Luann Paris and any of our others of our number that are struggling with these things, that you would grant them healing and well-being, Lord God, that you would restore their bodies, and that you would also give their doctors and nurses great understanding and skill in regard to their case. <clears throat> we pray for Miss Stricky, who's in the hospital, Lord God, with double pneumonia. She's been struggling with this for several weeks now, Lord God, and we just pray for her restoration and healing and well-being in the name of Jesus Christ. We wanna pray for the Baker family now that Johnny is gone to be with you, Lord God. We pray for the family that you would bless them and keep them and build them up through this event, Lord God, to deeper and richer relationship with you. They know that they will receive him back on the last day. We also pray for the Bickley family who had Bob's memorial service here yesterday, Lord God, that you would just bless them and keep them and encourage them in all things in Christ. We pray for the Maffitt family, and details related to an upcoming time at Vanderbilt for Eliana. We pray for their financial well-being in regard to this and also for the medical team, that you would just bless all of these endeavors, Lord God, and heal and restore that child in the name of Jesus Christ. We pray for Aileen Prude, who has a broken leg and is now in recovery. We pray that you would bless her and keep her and restore her and heal her in Jesus' name. We continue to pray for Jack and Barbara Anthony for general well-being and encouragement. We pray for Stephen McBride and for Gage Webb who are both still in their military training to serve and protect this country and also for Ryan and Jose. We pray that you would be with them and keep them safe and well as they serve you and serve this nation in Jesus' name. (coughs) Chris Kelly's mother has had a stroke incidental to other uh, medical problems that she's been struggling with. And so we pray, Lord God, for your hand to be upon her for you to care for her, for you to heal her and restore her in the name of Christ. We pray for Peggy Ford. She had kidney stents redone and is healing. We pray, Lord God, that you would just bless her and keep her and heal her. We continue to pray for Teresa's brother and nephew, Mike and Christopher Smith. We have continued prayers for Stan, Cindy, and the family that are unspoken. We pray for Stan, who Wednesday is having shoulder surgery to repair a rotator cuff. We pray, Lord God, that you would bless that administration and that you would bring about his full recovery in Jesus' name. We pray especially for Frankie Baker after losing Johnny, Lord God, that you would just bless her and keep her in all things. We pray for Ramona Fredman, who's having tests tomorrow, that those tests, Lord God, would find out everything the doctors want to find from it, that there would be clear conclusions for clear treatment in Jesus' name. We pray for traveling mercies for the Tuckers who are coming here tomorrow for uh, the Baker funeral. Just pray that you would bless that time, Lord God, because we know that it it is not a mere administration. It is a real and true church service, Lord God, that the funeral and memorial service are a time of worship for you in your receiving of one of your children. And we thank you for these things in Jesus' name. Also, generally, Lord God, we pray for this nation, for this people that you've made us a part of. We pray that you would bless her, Lord God, and that presidents and kings and senators and Congress people and those in positions of power and authority would guide righteously and with justice and according to your royal law, which is to love you and love their neighbor as themselves. If they take upon themselves these two duties, everything else will be easy. We also pray, Lord God, for your church here and around the world, that your gospel would be preached And that by the power of your Holy Spirit in the soul, that many people would come to know you as Lord and Savior. We pray, Lord God, also for the general cares of the the congregation, for financial difficulties. And we know that you are our great provider, that you would grant us jobs to provide for ourselves and our families and the community. And also for any unspoken prayers in regard to health, Lord God. We know that you are our physician and pray that you would bring about healing and well-being in our bodies. In your bulletin handout, there's another song. Please rise as we sing He is Exalted. Halfway down on page one.
0: Will come forward. We will receive the morning offerings at this time. (coughs) Let's pray. Lord, we thank you for the abundant blessings that you have given us, and today as we return a portion of them, we pray for that to extend the work of your kingdom so that many others in this community and throughout the world may come to know about your goodness, mercy, and love through the work of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray, amen.
2: to give back to you a small portion of the great gifts you've given us. And we pray that you would use these funds to extend your kingdom here and around the world. In Jesus' name, amen. Please be seated. Saints, we've gotten to a difficult part of this sermon series. This is the part where they usually get mad at the pastor. Let's turn to John chapter 6. John chapter 6. Jesus was preaching this day. And as often happens, when truth is preached, somebody's going to get run out of town. Have you guys ever noticed that? Everybody likes a little sprinkling of religion, right? As long as you don't get too specific on stuff. That's what makes people mad. So we'll start at about verse 22. On the next day, the crowd that remained on the other side of the sea saw that there had been only one boat there and that Jesus had not entered the boat with his disciples, but that his disciples had gone away alone. Other boats from Tiberias came near the place where they had eaten the bread after the Lord had given thanks. So when the crowd saw that Jesus was not there, nor his disciples, they themselves got into the boat and went to Capernaum, seeking Jesus. Let's pray. Lord, our God, you've given us your word and it is a light in a dark place. We pray that you would fill us with it, that our blood and bones would just be full of vigor and joy in knowing you, the one true God and the salvation that you bring. We praise you for these things in Jesus Christ. Amen. Now, he goes on there. If you remember the story, this is right after the feeding of the thousands, right? He fed thousands of people with just a few barley loaves and a few fish. And they were so impressed that they decided to come the next day so they could have lunch again. You might think to yourself, no, they were impressed by the miracle. And they saw that Jesus was Lord. But that's not actually what the text says. The text says they got hungry and they were looking for another handout. When they found him on the other side of the sea, they said to him, Rabbi, when did you come here? And Jesus answered, truly, truly, I say to you, you are seeking me not because you saw the signs, but because you ate your fill of the loaves. Jesus always knows what's going on in us. We have this guttural, (laughs) visceral reaction to the blessings of God. We like the blessings of God. We just don't like the correspondent holiness that's generally attendant to it, right? And the same thing with them. He's telling the truth. He's saying, you didn't come after me because you saw the sign. Even though you saw the sign, you're only coming because I gave you bread. And now he's going to try to push them beyond their stomach. Remember that verse in the Bible that says their God was their stomach? Face it, most of us, our God is our stomach, right? Especially you guys. You know what I'm talking about. But we get to the place where Jesus is going to give them a gift. He's going to give them a gift, and he's going to draw them beyond their stomach into the spiritual reality behind the bread. And some people are going to go with him, and some people are not. He goes on here. Do not work for the food that perishes, but for the food that endures to eternal life, which the Son of Man will give you. For on him, God the Father has set his seal. Then they said to him, what must we do to be doing the work of God? It's a valid question, right? What do we do to do the works that God has commanded us? And Jesus answered, this is the work of God. That you believe in the one whom he has sent. That's the whole work. Now, if you would have asked them to do something difficult, like climb a great mountain or swim an ocean or go into battle, they probably would have done it. But he cripples all of their assumptions about their self righteousness by bringing them down to this one thing. You know what you want it. You know what you need to do to do the works of God. Just believe in the one that He said. That's it. And instead of this bringing out in them some kind of uh, affection or some kind of compassion or some kind of self repentance, it irritates them. So they said to him, "Then what sign do you do that we may see and believe in you? had not they already seen a sign?" They saw a big sign just in the last chapter. What work do you perform? Our fathers ate manna in the wilderness. As it's written, he gave them bread to eat from heaven. They're still fixated on the bread. Now, this might be hard for us to understand at this point because we live in a place that's been blessed by God. And quite frankly, it's harder to make Christians in a place that's been blessed by God. Doesn't that sound weird? When people are hungry and people are divided and when there's war and there's trouble everywhere... You know, there's a reason why they say there's no atheist in a foxhole, right? When people see the immediate apparent need for God, it's easier to get across to them. But when everything's good, frankly, it's harder. Because what do you need God for? Many times we've talked about the blessing and curse of money, right? Money and finances and riches are always talked about by God as a blessing that he gives his people whom he loves so they can take care of themselves and their families. But there's this second thing to it. Too much of anything is bad, right? Right? Even too much pie is bad. You might not believe that, but even too much pie. With that, too much money leads people to depend and place their value and their hope in their money. And they build great monuments to themselves and great structures made out of stone that when they die, they get put in the structure, right? Because then they'll last forever, even though their bones are becoming dust like the rest of us, right? So they're saying, don't put your faith in the things in this world. But they were hungry, and they were poor people, and they were dominated by the Romans who had reduced the entire nation to a state of servitude. So bread was a very visceral, important thing to them, and they came for more bread. He gave them bread from heaven to eat. Jesus said to them, truly, truly, I say to you, it was not Moses who gave you bread from heaven to eat, but my Father gives you the true bread from heaven." For the bread of God is he who comes down from heaven and gives life to the world. In other words, even that manna that came down that God gave was only a type of Christ who was there in front of them right now and they would not even recognize him. Then they said to him, sir, give us this bread always. And Jesus said to them, here's where it gets hard for them. I am the bread of life. Whoever comes to me shall not hunger and whoever believes in me shall never thirst. But I said to you that you have seen me yet you do not believe. They were seeing the bread. They were touching the bread. They were talking to the bread, but they would not accept him as the bread. So then he starts to explain that to them. All that the father gives me will come to me. And whoever comes to me, I will never cast out. For I have come down from heaven not to do my own will, but the will of him who sent me. And this is the will of him who sent me, that I should lose nothing, not one, of all those he has given me, but raise it up on the last day. Now, these are hard teachings of Jesus. One of the reasons we know these are hard teachings of Jesus is they're about to tell him, Jesus, these are hard teachings. So we know they're thinking these are hard teachings, right? For this is the will of my father, that everyone who looks on the son and believes in him should have eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. And the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. They said, is this not Jesus, whose son Joseph, whose father and mother we know? Because he's in Jesus' hometown here. He's in, his, he's in his area. They all know Jesus. They know his mother and his father. He's not the Messiah. I know that kid. You know, the kids that you grow up with are much harder to think of as spiritual leaders. Mom, just so you know that. Is she in here? (laughs) How does he now say, I came down from heaven? But here's where we get to the point that their spiritual resistance is starting to affect their cognitive abilities to reason. There's a thing called bias, right? Have you ever heard of an argument and you say somebody's biased in their own case? In other words, their argument shows that they just don't want something to be true. They don't really care if it's true or not. They're gonna argue against it anyway. Well, the Bible has neck deep arguments about bias. It says we're all biased for or against things. And our natural inclination from our birth in Adam is that we are actually biased not for God, but against God. That it takes something miraculous to happen for us to get re-biased toward God and away from ourselves. We're naturally biased toward our belly and we're not naturally biased toward God. Now Adam in the beginning, he was different, but he fell into sin and all his offspring came into sin with him, Right? So now the natural man in and of himself does not have this strong inclination that I'm going to seek and find God. He has this natural inclination to hide himself in the bushes and to cover himself with fig leaves. Jesus answered, do not grumble among yourselves. I always wonder what the, what the clear enunciation of that was in the original Greek. Do not, because you know, it sounds very nice. They always nice it up when they translate the Bible ending. Do not grumble among yourselves. Like it was something like that. But Jesus wasn't like that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. Now this is Jesus. This is red letter. This is the stuff that if you're a red letter Christian, which means you really only accept the stuff that Jesus said, he said that. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him. This is one of the reasons that when we pray for the evangelization and the successful uh, evangelization of the world, we pray that God would do it. You guys know that for many years, I had a radio program where we did apologetics, and apologetics is answering people's concerns about the faith. And one of the things you learn the quickest is that none of your arguments have ever converted anyone. None of your missionary efforts have ever converted anyone. None of your great sermons that you worked on all week that people don't really appreciate. I'm just kidding. But <laughs> none of your great sermons has ever converted anyone. And then you sit down with somebody and you just explain to them the simple gospel and immediately they believe and they are transformed and they are a different person after that. They have been born again, really and literally. Their spirit is different. Their composure is different. Their views of the world and of right and wrong are different because they have been reborn. But it is not by man's ministrations. It's true that God gives us this little piece in it. He allows us as his children to take part in the evangelization of the world so that we get the great honor and privilege of proclaiming Christ to them. And he will use that as an instrument if he wishes. But he doesn't need us because only God has ever made a convert, right? Because everyone that comes to him is someone that he's drawn to himself. Now, this is very contrary to contemporary large-scale evangelicalism, but you have to remember that large-scale evangelicalism was designed to get as many people in it as possible. And once you get as many people in it as possible, it's not always that accurate. It is written in the prophets, Jesus says, that they will be taught by God. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to me. Everyone who has heard and learned from the Father comes to him. If they don't come to him, they have not heard or learned from the Father. Not that anyone has seen the Father except for he who is from God. He has seen the Father, talking about himself. Truly, truly, I say to you, whoever believes has eternal life. I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate manna in the wilderness and they still died. This is the bread that comes down from heaven so that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread that came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I will give for the life of the world is my flesh. Now, I know if you've been a Christian a long time, it's hard to go back and psychologically put yourself in the seat of the person who's hearing this for the first time. But it's extraordinary stuff, right? Jesus does not measure people's relationship with God by whether or not they believe in God. He kind of assumes, most of the time in scripture, that everybody believes in God. Not a big deal for him. The thing is, God passed by all those mere assertions of the existence of God and deities and angels and demons. And he came to a place where God sent his son into the world to seek and to save that which was lost. And now everything we think of the father goes through the lens of the son. Now, for the last 2,000 years, the only question really is, what do you think of Jesus? I know that's a hard truth to get, but that's the truth of Scripture. He is not sitting here trying to convince these people to believe in God through a a series of handy arguments so that they can be general theists. He's saying, if you don't know me, you don't know my Father either. Everything is, what do you think of Jesus? So the Jews grumbled about him because he said, I am the bread that came down from heaven. Uh, Excuse me, wrong line. 52. The Jews disputed among themselves saying, how can this man give us his flesh to eat? In other words, they're being wooden literalists with the text. When Jesus says, eat him, he's bread. It's not because he's really bread you can eat. We love our Roman Catholic friends, but we disagree about this because he says it's an analogy, right? So Jesus said to them, truly I say to you, unless you eat the flesh of the son of man and drink his blood, you have no life in you. Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood has eternal life and I will raise him up at the last day. Next week, we're going to celebrate the Lord's Supper. I want you to remember these verses when he talks about them because by these simple symbols of bread and wine, he represents the eating of his flesh and blood, which we do consume spiritually, but not carnally in these little capsules of matter, right? Whoever feeds on my flesh and drinks my blood abides in me and I in him as the living father has sent me and I live because of the father. So whoever feeds on me, he also will live because of me. This is the bread that came down from heaven. Not like the bread the fathers ate and died. Whoever feeds on this bread will live forever. Jesus said these things in the synagogue in Capernaum. Now, when many of his disciples, and to me, this is the most crushing line in this whole sermon that Jesus is giving, right? When many of his disciples, now his disciples were not these people that were just meeting him and looking for bread. And it wasn't really the 11 that were with him but it was people that had been following him for a while. These are people that knew his teaching and sat at his feet and heard his gospel many times. They were the witnesses of the miracles. When many of his disciples heard it, they said, this is a hard saying. You know how people say stuff like that, right? "Eh, This is a hard saying. I don't know where Jesus gets off, right? Who can listen to it, they said. Who can even listen to this? But Jesus, knowing in himself that his disciples were grumbling about this, said to them, do you take offense at this? In other words, I got worse stuff for you. If you're offended by this, you're really going to be offended by this next bit. (laughs) Then what if you were to see the son of man ascending to where he was before? You have to remember that our understanding of the incarnation is that the eternal son of God has always existed. Belief in one God as one person is not Christianity. Belief in three gods that are really one is modalism. It's not Christianity. That the Father, the Son, and the Holy Spirit have always existed, and that the person of the Father through the Son created the worlds, but it is the Son who came down from heaven and was incarnated into the baby and born of the Virgin Mary. The Father was not born, the Spirit was not born. The son was born. So here he says, what if you saw me ascend to where I was before? In other words, from where I came down, you didn't see me. But when I go up, you'll see me. That'll offend you more. Then what if you see the son of man ascending to where he was before? Verse 63, it is the spirit who gives life. The flesh counts for nothing or is of no help at all. The words that I have spoken to you are spirit and life. So here he gets to his point. His gospel is not that he's going to turn into a loaf of bread. That's their carnal imaginations that were kind of constricting what he was saying there. It's the very words that he's giving, the gospel that he's giving that is life. But there are some of you that do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who those were who did not believe and who it was that would betray him. And he said, this is why I told you. In other words, because some of his disciples, remember, this isn't the general people that came for the bread. This is some of his disciples. And he already knew some of them didn't believe. And then he explains that to him. He says, this is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it is granted him by my father. Now let's get to this point, because it's a very itchy point, And I'm gonna offend some of you. And really, I'm not that upset about it. But here's the thing. When I was a kid, when I was, I was like, 22 years old when I started doing evangelism and I traveled the country doing evangelism and I would stand up in front of faces and I would preach and I would do altar calls and people would walk forward and every once in a while I'd go back to the same place twice and the same people would come forward they get saved three four times I didn't care I was getting you know but here's this thing I got to a place where I started to measure from scripture somebody challenged me they said are there any altar calls in the bible like a stupid question of course there's altar calls in the Bible right I started flipping around in there I keep looking you know I don't I don't find exactly an altar call right do you know Presbyterians get a lot of heat for not doing altar calls and you'd want to know what the reason was and eventually it convinced me because you ain't going to find a single one in here this thing that we do you know we could even do it right now okay Brothers and sisters, somebody play some some nice music. Just kidding. (laughs) (laughs) And if somebody here, lower the lights. And we're going to have a come to Jesus moment. And I'm going to say, everybody put your heads down and close your eyes. And if you believe what I'm saying, raise your head and look at me. I see your eyes and I agree with you. I see your eyes. Raise your hand. And then all of you that raised your eyes, I want you to walk down to the front so you can get saved. And when you walk down to the front, I'm going to pray this prayer for you, a prayer that is not in the Bible in any place, that we made up about the 1880s. And that's how people become Christians. And that's why so many people come to Christ, but they come and they're born into the kingdom with all kinds of birth defects. They think they saved themselves on that day by amending themselves to this entire apparatus that has taken on the nature of a sacrament, in which there's not a single shred of evidence in the Bible. The reason that Presbyterians have had such a great success in the past in evangelism is that there are entire countries on earth that are more Presbyterians than any other sect is they believe this. If I have told you the gospel and you have believed it, you are a Christian, that is it. You're not a Christian when you come down and pray my prayer or jump through my hoops. You're a Christian when you have believed Christ and you have been saved. That is it, Right? So that's the thing about this thing of adding things to the gospel and adding things to the church service and doing this and that and the other thing. There is nothing for you to do. In this orientation, you kind of understand that you have not saved yourselves. You're the shooting there like, oh my God, I believe this. You're as shocked as anybody. Well, some people might be more shocked than you, right? But you have believed a gospel that has come to you that is only words and it has transformed you and then you feel like God has saved you. Not like you have been given a good opportunity to save yourself through good works and the emendation of your life. Do You see how birth defects can happen? The way that it's explained to you in the beginning kind of becomes the way you understand it as you go on. When did I get saved? It can look a lot like when did I save myself, Right? And so Jesus is saying these things when he says, But there are some of you that did not believe. And he said, This is why I told you, no one can come to me unless it's granted him by my father. And then in verse 66, it says, After this, many of his disciples turned back and no longer walked with him. I don't want to, I, I can't overemphasize the fact that we're talking about his disciples, right? When they were confronted with the true nature of Jesus and salvation, they walked away. They walked away. So Jesus then said to the twelve, you know, because these are his closest guys. These aren't just his disciples. These are the ones he was training for future ministry. Do you want to go his way as well? But notice the response of faith. Here's the response of faith that he gets. Peter answered, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words Of eternal life. Peter knew. You all know Peter was a mess. Peter was a mess. He's the only one of the disciples that got the great honor of being called Satan by Jesus. (laughs) Get thee behind me, Satan. You have not in mind the things of God, but the things of men, because he wanted to protect Jesus from the cross, right? He's the only one that denied Jesus three times. He was always in trouble, right? But when it came down to it, the reason that Jesus and Peter were tight is his faith was pure, not always with knowledge, but with the laser beams efficiency in regard to the purity of the gospel, right? To who would we go? You have the words of eternal life. In other words, nobody else has them. Peter's been around. Nobody else has them. Jesus has them. And we have believed and have come to know Notice the difference between those two words. A lot of us believe, but we come to the point where we know that you are the Holy One of God. Jesus answered, did not I choose you, the twelve? Yet one of you is a devil. And he spoke about Judas. So here's where we're going to stop here on this. I know it's a little heavy, and that's a lot of scripture to go through, almost an entire chapter, but it's a big, fat chapter, right? but we're talking about heavy things. Your relationship with God was not instituted or began by you yourself and your good intentions. If you have come to know God, it's because God first knew you and he invaded your life against your will. And he shook you back and forth until you finally relented to the overwhelming power of the Holy Ghost, which will not leave anyone behind that God has chosen and called to himself. No one can come to him unless the father who sent him draws him. And he will raise every one of you up at the last day. Amen. Amen. Lord, our God and Father, again, for your word, it's, it's sometimes too much for us, Lord. Let us not be like those disciples that finally understand exactly what you're really talking about. And that is the point at which we snap and walk away and will walk with you no more. And let us be like, instead, let us be like Peter, who recognizes that whatever you said, that is your gospel. And whatever you've said, you are God. Whatever you've said, you are the Holy One of Israel and there's nowhere else we can go. Let us believe you. Let us submit ourselves to your words and your will and let us worship you with joy and gladness. We thank you for these things in the name of Jesus Christ. Amen. 39? Please rise as we sing number 39. Oh God, our help in ages past. God bless you and keep you. May his face shine upon you and give you peace. Amen.